Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. What a pleasure to be back with you again today as we explore how we can get started in investing in industrial real estate. Chad Griffiths has been an industrial real estate broker since 2005 and has been an investor since 2014. As a member of a global commercial real estate company and a partner with his local firm, he's completed over 500 deals with clients ranging from small companies to large institutional owners. Chad has interviewed over 50 industry experts and has also been on a number of different podcasts. In addition to giving numerous interviews on national media, he has recently been named as an industrial influencer by GlobalSTU.com. And Chad is a big advocate of continuous learning and has earned an SIOR, a CCIM, and has an MBA. So, Chad, thank you for being with us and start us off by sharing a memorable experience that's helped you to be who you are today. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me on the show, Alan. I'm very excited to be here. You asked me that question before we got started. And the first thing that came to mind actually was how I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And I go back to when I was probably 10 or 11 years old and I set up a table on a busy street outside of our house and I sold baseball cards to everybody that, that either walked by or was curious enough to stop their car just to see what I was selling at a small table. And I seem to recall that I did reasonably good. I'm sure that I parlayed those any profits that I had into more baseball cards, but that experience of talking to people at a young age and and trying to sell essentially really just prompted me to continue that mindset all the way through. So I delivered flyers, I raked people's lawns, I shoveled snow in the winter, and all the way through, uh, as I was going through college, I always seemed to work in service jobs. And I've just found that having that experience of serving people has been really foundational for my career, where my mindset is always to be, how can I help the customer as opposed to how can I just make a quick sale? And I think that's real estate in general, particularly commercial real estate or industrial real estate investing. You have to have that long-term horizon. You have to bring something to the table beyond just a quick transaction. And I think starting all the way off from when I was selling baseball cards to working in, in the restaurant, in different retail locations, I think that that really helped just lay the foundation for how I approach business right now. Well, an excellent way to get started. I guess you must have had an interest in baseball cards or were you just interested in the selling aspect of that. I still to this day, actually, I, I still have cards. It, it would be Is baseball right? and hockey cards. And I probably collected since I was six or seven years old, all the way up. And if memory serves, that's that's over 30 years ago now that I was uh, selling cards on the side of the street. If memory serves, I didn't sell my good ones. I just tried to sell duplicate ones that I had, or I'd try to package a whole team together so that I could, if somebody had a favorite team, like the Oakland A's as an example, I could, I could give them the whole set. So, but I'm pretty sure I still even have some of those cards that I would have had when I was 10 years old that were my favorites. Well, I bet they're really worth something today from what I know of the but what little I know about baseball card collecting now. Well, thank you for sharing that interesting story there. Chad, 
Tell us about the basics of industrial real estate investing, because it certainly is its own unique class or set, yeah. I should say. That, that's a great way of describing it because it, it not only is it unique, but it's also very unfamiliar for a lot of people. And for, for the sole reason that most people have no reason to go into an industrial building, let alone even an industrial park. They're typically tucked away in remote areas, which are specifically away from residential or even commercial areas by design. A lot of municipal planners want to have it tucked away just because they're either there's noise or there could be odor or there could be things coming from these buildings. So municipal planners have intentionally put these industrial areas away from the general purview. And because of that, very few people actually know a whole lot about industrial where you can contrast that to other asset classes like office space. We've all been in an office building. We at least have some familiarity with that. We've all been in a retail shopping center or a strip mall. We obviously all have lived in a house or an apartment building. So we're intimately familiar with these, whether we even know it or not, but industrial, a lot of people have never even been in an industrial building. So I typically like breaking it down into three groups because whether people know it or not, there actually are some buildings that are very similar to a, a traditional industrial building, which we've all been to. And, and I'll get to that in a second. But the three categories I usually break it down to are manufacturing, warehousing, and flex properties. And manufacturing, these are the ones where people probably haven't been into unless they've been into a factory or some kind of building where things are made produced, manufactured. The one example that I like to give for a manufacturing property is the, the Boeing Everett factory just outside of Seattle. So it's a 4 million square foot building where all the raw materials come in, they're assembled into Boeing airplanes, and then the final product goes out the door. That's a traditional manufacturing property. The 4 million square feet, it's actually the largest building by cubic footage in the world. So not every building's 4 million square feet, but they can go all the way down to a 2000 square foot manufacturing facility where there might be a, a machine shop that has a single CNC machine in there. So it's that full spectrum on, on where things are basically just made. Then the other major category is warehousing. And interestingly, we're seeing a lot more of this in the public eye now, and I'm sure anybody that's tuned in knows of a big Amazon fulfillment center that just went up in, in their area. Perhaps it was by a, a major airport or it's on a major road. Uh, in my market, Amazon built a million square foot facility just a couple years ago, and it's right, right across from the airport and it's a million square feet. You can't miss this building if you tried to. So I think everybody's become a lot more familiar with where housing as we've moved to e-commerce and that's gotten a lot more popular, but these warehouses are, are really just big buildings where things are stored. So the, the one, and this is where I think actually people will have some instant familiarity with this is that a Home Depot or a Costco is really a warehouse. It's got really high ceilings. It's got racks of storage where things are stored and customers come in and pick things off of there and then they go and pay for it. It's in a retail location, a Home Depot or a Costco is typically in a, in a major retail location, but the building itself is really just a large warehouse. And if you contrast that to a, an Amazon fulfillment center, there's a lot of similarities there. That's high ceilings, lots of storage. It's just instead of customers coming and picking it up themselves, they'll have workers inside that are picking products that need to go to certain places. And that's all predetermined. But th there's a lot of similarities between a Home Depot and a, a warehouse. 
warehouse. So I think that more and more people are becoming familiar with that warehouse concept. And then the third category is flex properties. And this is, I would describe it as a catch-all for all the properties that are zoned industrial, but aren't necessarily compatible for either manufacturing or warehousing. It can work in these flex properties, but typically we'll see flex properties used as anything from a car dealership to self-storage to a church. We've seen churches in these flex properties. I own a, an industrial property, which is zoned industrial. It's a pure industrial building, but we have an office in there and as one of the tenants, and it's 100% office space. So it's an industrial zone building, but it's used primarily for office. So that flex category, sort of a catch-all for all the other properties that aren't neatly manufacturing or warehousing. And I think it's important to distinguish those three because they all have different investment profiles because they all have different tenants that they're trying to attract. So it's a long-winded answer to your question, Alan, but I, I hope that kind of frames the different subcategories of industrial. Yeah, that helps to, to understand what it is we're talking about when we're talking about industry. So in understanding the basics of what industrial is and looking at it from these three various different groups, how is it that that we could get started as active investors in industrial investing. Going back to the earlier comment that we both agreed upon is that industrial is unique and it's also a unfamiliar asset class for a lot of people. I think there's a few things that I'd recommend. First, you have to have a good reason why you want to consider industrial. It's going to take a lot of work to fully understand the market, become an expert in it so that any decision you make is an educated one and that you're actually going to maximize your yield. I think you need to have a very compelling reason first on why you even want to get into industrial. And there's pros and cons, just like there are other asset classes. But one of the cons that I'd say right off the bat, and as contradictory as this may sound, I actually think that industrial real estate should scare the average investor. It should be a daunting, overwhelming asset class that should scare people because I think that there's also the most downside risk if somebody makes a poor decision. I think if you make it an educated decision and you've spent the time getting to understand the asset class, you, you become an expert in your local market and you make a proper decision, I think the upside is huge, but it's like a pendulum. If the upside can be really large, the downside swings the other way can be also quite large. And if, if I can go just actually off on, on a quick side note on that, just to illustrate that a little bit more, fully recognizing that the last thing I want to do is tell people that they shouldn't invest in industrial real estate. I just think that it's worth highlighting that it does come Come with risk as well. And I had a client that bought a property in a small market a few years ago, and there was about four years left on the tenancy. And two years after he bought it, the tenant announced that they were vacating the building. So they still continued paying the rent on it, but they couldn't sublease the space. So he had an empty building. The value of the property probably dropped 30% just in that time as a result of no certainty of finding a tenant. And then to yeah. And add another vacancy on, and you know certainty of a new tenant. Yeah. Absolutely. And if I could just add one more thing real quick too, what made it even worse is a provision in his insurance uh, meant that somebody had 
to check on that property every two days. So either him or someone that he had to hire had to drive 40 minutes each way to do a check on the property to make sure that there was no issues in there. So that's, I wanted to illustrate that because I, I think to fully answer your question, it really involves someone having a really compelling reason on why they wanted to get into industrial, understanding that there's risks involved in it and understanding that if they're prepared to accept those risks and also become a student of the industry and really learn everything that they can about it. I also think that there's much higher upside. And I think that there's reasons that make it a lot more compelling, at least in my mind, versus the other asset classes. But to directly answer your question, how do they get into it? I would recommend people to find a mentor first, find somebody in your local market that's already done it, that's already invested in industrial real estate. And perhaps you can be the capital component and the other person that you're going to want to learn from can bring the experience and the knowledge through it. But I've seen too, far too many people make a rookie mistake by virtue of them being new into the industry. And it proves to be very costly. So be a student of the game, learn everything you can about the industry. And if you have somebody that's working with you with an invested interest in it, I think you're maximizing your chances of success. Well, speaking of mentors, Chad, share with our viewers and listeners what it is you have to offer and how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, I've, mine's kind of an interesting story. I don't really have anything directly to offer other than I just love talking about industrial real estate. So I started a YouTube channel about a year and a half ago where I just share stories, share tips and ideas that I have where, where people can come and learn more about industrial real estate. It's not a single video because the topic is rather complex, but I'd like to pride myself on the fact that I don't mention what company I work for. I don't even mention what city I live in because I want it to be just a standalone product where, where people can come and I'm not trying to solicit anything. So yeah, probably a little contrary to what, what a lot of people might say on, on a podcast. I, I really don't have anything to sell. Well, that's, but you do have the mentoring to offer it, whether that's direct mentoring or through your YouTube channel. Certainly something that our enlightened investors who are looking for industrial opportunities, good way for them to learn from that. So thanks for sharing that. You had mentioned that if you're going to go into industrial real estate, you need a compelling reason. What would be a compelling reason to go into industrial real estate? Yeah. And I mentioned the cons already. I think the pros are that it's a lot easier to scale a portfolio. And even if an investor only wanted to own one asset in industrial versus trying to build a larger portfolio, from the standpoint that a a lot of these leases are longer term in nature, and they're also larger properties. One property that I own uh, as an example is about a $3 million property, and we have a single tenant in there. It's a Fortune 1000 tenant, and it's a single tenant. So if you were to compare that to a multifamily property and buy a $3 million multifamily property, I'm guessing you're probably in that 15 to 20 units. And with 15 to 20 units comes that many tenancies that you're having to deal with. So whether you try to outsource it to a property manager or whether you end up dealing with it yourself, there's a lot of calls and involvement that's required to manage a property of that size versus that one property that we have. I haven't been to it since we bought it. There's a property manager in place. They pay their rent. They do everything on their own. I haven't had any calls at midnight about a toilet that was plugged. So from the standpoint that it's just a lot easier to manage and it's a lot more hands-off, add in the fact that this tenant in particular still has four years left on their lease. I don't have to worry about turning over tenants all the time, provided that this company didn't go 
bankrupt or do a midnight move. I've got the security of having a a long-term tenant in there that's not bothering me with day-to-day issues. And to scale that, it makes it even easier. I could get to a much bigger portfolio without having to have a full system for, for management and operations in there. So I think that that's one of the main advantages. And I guess closely related to that is just how leases are structured in industrial and commercial in general. Whereas residential, it's typically going to going to be a gross monthly amount that the tenant pays, perhaps just using some arbitrary numbers, perhaps it's $1,000 a month, plus the tenant might pay utilities. In that $1,000 a month, it's going to include property taxes, any condo fees, any insurance. That's all included in that gross amount that the tenant pays. Where in industrial, it typically structured as a triple net lease. So what that means is the tenant will pay X amount as base rent or net rent as it's sometimes called. And then they also pay for all the operating costs of the building. So that includes the property taxes, building insurance, common area maintenance, management fees. They pay for all those costs, but they also pay for any increases in those costs. So if you can imagine if you had a multifamily or a residential tenant, and let's just hypothetically assume that it was a five-year lease that they agreed to sign. If you only charge them a thousand dollars a month, eventually those any increases in those operational level expenses is going is going to erode the profit that's going to the landlord. Versus an industrial lease, if you have a base amount and then they pay for any increase in those costs, you know that that base level of rent is going to be consistent through the whole term of the lease. So it just gives a lot more security and, and peace of mind for an investor that they're not going to have their their cash flow eroded. And I'm sure it's the same in your market, Alan. Like municipal property taxes just always seem to be going up at a pace much higher than inflation. So if you don't have some mechanism to cover those increases, you quickly start eroding your profit. So I, I'd say that those would be the main reasons why they do it. And and closely related to that as well, I suppose, just as, an, as another thought on it, is that because industrial real estate is a complex and potentially overwhelming proposition. There's less competition just as a result that there's fewer people that want to spend the time and, and, and take on that risk less competition going after the same amount of properties. So if I'm sure it's anybody listening in this market can identify with this. If a really hot multifamily property came on the market and it was priced well, there might be dozens, if not hundreds of potential investors that would go after that. In a really hot market, it could even be a multiple of that. Whereas in industrial, there's just less people chasing it. So less competition overall. So pros and cons on why I'm attracted to that, where I've got, with the exception of one small residential property that I have, everything else is industrial right now. That Those are the reasons why I've pursued it. In terms of competition, what's what do you think the ratios between industrial investors in terms of individual and small investors? It would go by the price point uh, more than anything. Once you get into that five and $10 million plus value, you're starting to compete with institutional buyers, or at the very least, you're, you're competing with existing investors that have sizable portfolios. I typically like to be in that under 5 million space where you're competing with with mostly local investors or, or perhaps out-of-state investors where they're still attracted to it, but they're just not going to know as much about the market as I will. I would say that 
as you increase in price, you start competing more with those institutional ones. But if you're under that 5 million, if you're under that 2 million, uh, especially, you're mostly just competing with local investors. In terms of that under 5 million, in terms of the three groups, what are you finding there? Manufacturing, housing, or warehousing, or flex? Warehousing, without question, has been the highest demand asset in over the past 10 years, and especially over the last three years. Where industrial was always seen as a less glamorous asset than some of these trophy assets like owning a golf course or owning a, a sky rise downtown. Industrial is always seen as less glamorous, but that's changed, particularly over the past couple of years as, as some of these owners have just looked at industrial as being a very stable and secure asset class. It's attracted a lot of industrial money now. There are big funds. The largest property owner in the world, Prologis, which owns nearly a billion square feet of industrial real estate, a billion square feet, is it's all in warehousing. It's not, they don't own any manufacturing. They don't own any flex. They're the vast majority of their portfolio is all warehousing. So I would say that that's gotten the most attention, but with that attention also starts driving down cap rates. It starts making everything look more expensive because there's more institutional money on it. What I have is manufacturing or flex. That's what mine is for the main reason that the yields start getting compressed when you start look competing with big players like that. Mm And I think that that's also probably at the top of the market right now. I think that there's reasons to be a little bit bearish on how high those prices have climbed so fast and whether that's sustainable. So I like the manufacturing and flex also for size. That should be a notable one as well. The warehousing properties, uh, if you're looking at a million square foot building, it's going to be priced considerably higher than me buying a single tenant manufacturing property. So it's uh, certainly an element of price on that, but also I think I can just get better returns on that manufacturing and flex size. So how do we find these opportunities? Two ways that that are most common. And the first is either working with a broker or going on some of these public websites like LoopNet as an example, Crexy.com is another example, and just looking at what's available, what's being publicly marketed, or if you have a broker in your market that specializes in industrial, asking them to start sending you opportunities. The second way is to roll up the sleeves and and do some work trying to identify opportunities on your own. And that, I'm assuming that anybody that's interested in industrial already has some real estate experience. It's uncommon in my experience that someone will go straight into industrial without having some multifamily or some residential property investment experience already, unless they had their own an industrial company or something, and they already had some familiarity with industrial. But I'm assuming most investors have prior real estate experience. Start talking to people that you've already worked with. Probably have a lawyer that you've done deals with, your accountant, your banker. Start telling them that you're interested in exploring industrial. And if they talk to any of their clients or if they hear about an opportunity, you'd love to take a look at it. And if you take that active approach as opposed to just trying to find things on these public domains or having a broker send stuff to you, you might uncover an off-market deal that makes a whole lot of sense. And I've found success myself in a lot of these off-market deals where you're the only one looking at it. So you're not necessarily competing with 10 or 15 other interested buyers, but there's certainly an element of both. I know some investors that really close with brokers and they've got a handful of relationships that brokers are always sending them stuff and they've done very well off of that. And I know some investors that actively try to turn over every rock that they can in talking to people to see if they can find properties themselves. But those would be the two major ways, I would say. Well, what are 
are the basic keys to success in industrial investing? My first element that I always look at first without fail is my downside risk. So even if I'm looking at a property that has a tenant in there and there could be a long-term on there, I'm always looking to see what happens if that tenancy fails. And even if they don't fail, what happens if they don't renew down the road? And you can have a building that's has a tenant in there for five years, but if it's a unique building and perhaps it was custom built for that tenant that's in there, it might require a considerable amount of work to re-tenant that when that tenant comes up and it might not even be compatible for tenants. So I, I always look, go through the exercise of determining what is the worst case scenario on this? What is this property worth if it's vacant and I can't find another tenant and I have to fire sell this. What's my downside risk on that? And, and I think that that's a healthy exercise to go through just for the standpoint that you'll really get a good sense of what the market is because you'll have the part of that due diligence will be looking at the subject property and then all the ones that are comparable to it and just identifying if there's something major that could prohibit a tenant from being attracted to that in the future. And I think once you have a comfort on that downside risk, that the next step in due diligence is, is making sure that there's nothing wrong with that property. So that would involve a building condition assessment where an engineer or an inspector would go out and check all the key components of the building, such as the envelope, the HVAC systems, the electrical systems, the asphalt, or concrete, checking all the major components of the building and letting in, in a report, letting the buyer know if there's any upcoming deficiencies and if it's done properly, it should also have a cost on that. So the buyer would have comfort in knowing, okay, well, the roof might only have three years left on and it's going to cost $200,000 to replace. I need to factor that into my pro forma on this. Next report would be an environmental report, which there's four phases of environmental reports, but the whole idea is to identify if there's any concern for contamination. And I've never gone past a phase two report myself, just real quick for people that aren't familiar with it. A phase one, the technician will do a historical search on the property just to see if there's any buildings or businesses in the area from a historical perspective that could have caused some contamination. So that could have been a, an old gas station, that could have been an old dry cleaner, any type of use that might suggest that there's a problem. And they'll also do a visual walkthrough of the property. So you combine a historical search with a visual walkthrough, they'll determine if there's a potential for contamination. If they don't have any reason to believe it, they'll they'll typically say something to the effect that no further testing is recommended. If it goes to a phase two, that's when they actually bore holes and test the soil in a lab. And then they'll meet it against the threshold requirements of whatever state or jurisdiction is looking at it. And if there's no contamination beyond what that those thresholds are, then they'll say no further testing is recommended. If there, if it is determined to be contaminations in there, then you have to go through a phase three and a phase four, which is essentially coming up with a reclamation plan and approach on how to deal with it. And I've never gone to that level because you can be talking in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So just backstepping, if you have a building condition assessment, you understand all the problems that could be coming up and what it's going to cost. If you have an environmental report that says no further testing is required. And the third one would be an appraisal. If you have an appraisal that independent third-party appraisal giving you a, an opinion on what it's worth. And you have those three reports, you've calculated your downside risk. You can start then creating some projections on, on a pro forma on how this might look if you can increase 
rent over a certain period of time and what you can pay down in your principal and what tax benefits you have, then you can start doing like the fun part of commercial real estate investing. We can start extrapolating out a plan on how this might look best case scenario. But before we even get to that, I want to make sure downside risk is protected. You have those three reports so that you know any blind spots that you might have had, and then you can start having fun underwriting what that deal might look like. Great information. Thank you so much, Chad, for being with us today. Enlightened Investors, that's our show for today. Look forward to being with you next time. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.